I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. We're very excited today because we wanted Vikings and we found Vikings. Well, people who know about Vikings. Um, We have with us today... Tom Horn, who's an archaeologist and historian involved in producing documentaries as well, and he sports the most awesome big red Viking tribute beard. Hello, Tom. Hello, hello. Hello. Thank you for thank you for having me on. <laughs> Whereabouts are you, and how is lockdown? Uh, I'm in I'm in in Glasgow. Um, lockdown's fine because, as as many academics will tell you, we spend most of our time indoors <laughs> anyway. So <laughs> I think a lot of academics probably haven't noticed. <laughs> You're our first Scottish person. Yay! Oh, no. <laughs> no pressure. Yeah, <laughs> no pressure. But with you today, uh, she has no beard, but she's amazing. She's a bioarchaeologist historian. Her book, River Kings, which is a new history of the Vikings, is coming out soon. It's Dr. Kat Jarman. Hi, Kat. Hi, hello. Hi, where are you and how's it going? Hi, yeah, so I'm in the southwest. I'm in Wiltshire and it's going okay. It's, uh, I am actually just itching to get outside and uh, because I do a lot of digging as well, I've actually taken to digging up my garden, which is going quite well, but I'm not finding it. When you any say digging, are you like excavating it with the lines and the strata and. Not quite. It's mainly okay. the flowers. <laughs> I have got all my. I've got my toolbox. I've got my mattock out now, so there might well be a test pit before you. Know. <laughs> that would that would be quite funny if there'd have been a test pit in your garden. Um, but you have small yeah. people to entertain as well, don't you? I do. So that's quite a challenge. Small people and puppies and, and, puppies. and all sorts of things. So yeah, so it's, <laughs> it's quite full on. But <laughs> so this might be a bit of a relief for you to talk about dead Vikings. Yeah, it's quite nice. I've actually managed to properly shut the door and uh, bribe them all. So, yeah, peace and quiet and talk about Vikings is, is good. <laughs> Excellent. What did you use? Chocolate? Yeah, there's more Easter eggs. Outstanding. Yeah. So we're going to talk about um, the lesser known side of the Vikings, a few different aspects today, which um, I'm really excited about because obviously we all think Vikings, we all think war, plunder, rape, pillaging, invasion, um, which is obviously amazing to look at historically because it's all very exciting but there's much more to the vikings than that um let's start with they traveled a lot didn't they naturally um to invade and pillage and plunder but was it always for those benefits or did they have other ideas in mind yeah um so i mean what you have is you've always got you've got this sort of migration and raiding element and that's probably Sort of what begins the Viking Age. There, there's some fascinating work. Um, there's some ship burials. Actually, I know Alex that you, you as myself, look at Second World War archaeology, and um, they were doing some digging in Estonia in a place called Salma, and it was just for some utilities. And they found some skeletal remains, and they thought because it was major Second World War battlefields that you know they tend to find lots of skeletal remains there, and they assumed it was that. But luckily, they called the archaeologists in. And they discovered that actually these were what turned out to be essentially sort of large uh, mass Viking boat burials and cat, someone that can definitely talk about that later. And those burials have sort of been dated to maybe sort of the mid 8th centuries, we're talking about the 750s, perhaps earlier. 
and the people um, who are on these ships, and there's two ships, there's a large one and there's a, a smaller one, they seem to be coming from somewhere around Stockholm, Lake Amalrin sort of area where there's a big trading centre called Birka that we might talk about later as well. So what seems to be happening is there that the Viking Age is starting actually really earlier than we think, and it's probably starting off to do with raiding, maybe slave raiding, but also they're being drawn to the east, probably because of things like silver that they're using, that they're exchanging the silver um, uh, with traders in uh, Central Europe and uh, Central Asia uh, for slaves. Um, so basically what seems to be happening quite early on, you get the raiding and you probably get migration as well, and this happens earliest in the, in the Baltic, um, but it sort of evolves when you, you're fighting, you're getting slaves and you're selling the slaves and you're also bringing over um, trade items with you as well and exchanging them. So it builds and it sort of becomes this thing where trade becomes this very important element of it. So yes, raiding and migration are there and probably the earliest things that start, but very quickly what the Scandinavians seem to do is they understand and what a lot of my work is, is looking at how they think very quickly, how they can exploit this in terms of commerce and markets and, and trading. I love it because it's it's already attributing another level to Vikings um, that isn't just sort of like ignorantly wielding a sword and shield, but actually some real intelligence there with actually uh, interacting with other cultures. Oh yeah, that's absolutely a huge part of it. And I actually would see, looking at much of what I do, which is looking at the 9th century in, in England, looking for the, the Great Army, which we've, again, traditionally thought of very much as this, this war band uh, of Vikings just coming in, just, just looting and, and so on. But actually, they're also very heavily involved in trade. And it's a similar sort of things that, uh, that what Tom's talking about, a lot of silver coming in. We're now finding, especially through the work of metal detectorists, huge uh, amounts of, of silver dirhams, so these Islamic coins coming in in the 9th century. So not only have they got these uh, fortifications and winter camps that they used to attack the Vikings and especially fighting people like Alfred, but they're also actually trading with the locals. And uh, there's a huge sort of economic base. These, these camps that we used to think were just fortified um, sort of settlements were actually uh, market sites as well. So you have craft work going on, you have loads of trade, you've got this whole economy based, especially around silver, um, that we, we didn't really know about. 10, 20 years ago. And uh, so trading and raiding are very much hand in hand, I think, with the Vikings. I love it. Trading and raiding. Um, you've mentioned silver. Um, what other sort of things are they trading? So um, Tom mentioned earlier slaves, actually. Yeah. And that's uh, probably one of the biggest commodities, I think. But it's one that's quite invisible because we can't really see it. We have some written records that, that tell us about slaves, we, we, especially from the Irish annals, uh, if you look at the Western sources, that mention slaves being taken. Um, but we don't have a way of counting them because they're, they're kind of invisible in the archaeological records. How do you prove that somebody was taken uh, as a slave and traded? really really hard but we we do think that a lot of as, as tom said earlier that silver was swapped for slaves essentially so that that was one huge thing um but then we also have other commodities uh, lots of quite exotic goods um so we have things like precious gems and precious stones coming uh, again really really far away coming from the east things that connect into the silk roads which is uh, part of the thing that i think is hugely exciting as well it sounds like a really exciting um, time to be a, a Viking historian slash archaeologist. There seems to be lots of things coming to the fore and new things for you to look at. Definitely, yeah. I think when I first um, started in archaeology quite quite a while ago now, uh, but it was not as exciting as that because we are finding new things. Some of it is with new methods. Some of it is just reassessing what we thought we knew. There used to be a lot of sort of assumed knowledge on Viking uh, archaeology and history but now that we're sort of reinterpreting it and adding some new bits uh, a lot of the science bioarchaeology DNA that sort of thing is really adding to it so yeah definitely a, a good time to specialize in Vikings. It's very exciting and um, what about Viking exploration? Is that just an offshoot of being of looking for places to raid or is there more to it? Well yeah I mean again it, it comes down to these sort of these sort of phases, you've got the stuff going on in the, I say in the 8th century, it starts in the east, and Kat can talk um, later about her work in, in, in Ukraine with, with the Rus, um, who are a sort of Scandinavian Slavic uh, group 
but also we get the exploration um, generally from sort of, sort of southern and western Norway towards uh, Scotland and Ireland. And what seems to be happening there, the sort of earliest phases again, are these sort of more the sort of war band phases that set up things like the winter camps that at Torxey and Repton uh, that Cat looks at, but also you get them in, in Ireland as well. And they're called, um, now my Irish pronunciation is terrible, but it's like long fjords. Longfjord, which are sort of long ports, which are sort of basically like ship forts. So basically, you'll pull up your ships at the side of, of um, a river and you'll set up a, um, a sort of little fortified camp. And again, you like like it ripped and the cat looks at as well. This might be an area where you do craft work and you, you set up as trading as well. Again, this seems to be something that starts off at the very earliest ages of Viking exploration. But what comes in the wake of that, particularly in, in Scotland and in Eastern England, what would become the Danelaw is you get settlement there as well, because there's this idea that a lot of the Viking lands, there's, there, there's, there's a wonderful theory called youth bulge theory, um, which suggests that there's this spike in sort of population and there's lots of young males, second, third sons, and because there's not so much great agricultural land, especially in, in places like Norway, that you, you have to go abroad and you have to get your lands there. You, know, you, can't, you, you can only subdivide the, the farmlands so much. So basically, there's 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 this impetus um, for for trade goods because that can increase your sort of social standing, um, but there's also and you do that by raiding perhaps an Irish or Scottish monastery and we have some evidence of that particularly in Scotland. But then there's also this demographic pressure perhaps that's forcing people to go out and seek new lands and you get a lot of settlement obviously in, in the, the northern and western Isles of Scotland, the northern Isles of Scotland, Orkney and in Shetland particularly is very heavily settled. Less so in Ireland. Um, the idea of that is there seems to be much more sort of organised kingdoms there that stop the Vikings basically pushing out into agricultural land. So the, the Viking experience in Ireland is very much more, it's an urban experience. So you get places like Dublin they set up mm -hmm. um, and, and Waterford and Waterford develops downstream from this Woodstown Longport, this sort of ship port that's a bit like these Viking winter camps. So it doesn't really develop into that big colonial sort of movement where, in the way that it does in, in England and in, in Scotland. So you've got these sort of different sort of push-pull factors. You've got the pull of slaves that you can trade, but you've also got the pull of this sort of ecclesiastical riches that you can raid from monasteries. And there's also the pull of the, the land. And there might be the push factors as well, which is the fact is you're just running out of useful farmland and, and uh, at home. Um what is the marine reservoir effect? <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. So cat, cat, I'll I'll get this one. I think I've got Can it. <laughs> Go for it. Maybe, <laughs> I, I'll do it. You can you can just tell me if I get it right. right. Um, okay, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll stay to that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Right. So this is something that uh, has been a bit of an issue in archaeology. We've known about it for quite a while, but basically, it's got to do with radiocarbon dating and how we determine exactly how old human remains are. And this was a big issue in the Viking Age, especially at Repton, the site in Derbyshire that I uh, study, because there in the 1980s, a huge mass grave containing nearly four, uh, 300 people was found. And it seemed to be a Viking burial. Uh, they had Viking weapons and uh, it was on a, a known Viking winter camp. But the radiocarbon dates were all wrong. Some of them dated to the 9th century, which is when we know the Great Army was there, but some dated to uh, almost 200 years earlier. So they couldn't possibly be Vikings. But all the traditional archaeology was sort of shouting, here's a, a Viking a grave, mass grave. And uh, what it turns out to be was actually something called marine reservoir effects, which uh, relates to how much fish you eat uh, in your diet. And uh, the way that works is by uh, essentially that when we date a human body or a skeleton, we look at the carbon in that uh, skeleton. That's all come into your body through your diet. So whenever you eat or drink, you're adding to the carbon uh, mm -hmm. that's in your body. And if that's all, if you get all your food from a terrestrial source, so from, from like land animals and plants, then that's absolutely fine. We know how to deal with that. But the problem is if you eat fish, because fish uh, like to swim around in the oceans, and in the oceans there's some really old carbon, carbon that's been just circulating around for usually about 400 years or so, 
which means that that carbon gets into the fish, gets into your body, and you're eating old carbon, which makes it look like your carbon and your bones are much older than they really are. So archaeologists comes along a thousand years later, radiocarbon dating the bones, and uh, basically get a bit confused by this older carbon. So we've, we've kind of known about that, but we didn't really know it was a big problem until sort of 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. Reptin, the mass grave there, was never tested for, for diet. So it was assumed that they were just eating uh, land-based carbon or land-based animals. Turns out they were not surprisingly eating quite a bit of fish. Yeah. <laughs> you know. uh, so, uh, so that's part of the research I did as a part of my PhD. I checked how much fish they ate. Turns out all of those bodies that were seemingly too old were all uh, people who ate fish, essentially. Ah, oh, so it's had like a huge impact um, on archaeological study yeah. of the Vikings then. Yeah, it did really, because up to that point, it was assumed that this grave might have had something to do with the Vikings, but that those bodies certainly couldn't all be uh, related to the Viking Great Army or the 9th century. But now we've been able to show that they definitely could all date to the 9th century, meaning that they could all be Vikings, uh, which is uh, hugely important because now that opens up to working out who on earth are these people. Because um, there are actually, so the grave itself has got nearly 300 people in it. 80% of them are men, but 20% are women. And that's one of the, the big exciting things at the moment is the, the role of women in the Viking Age. Yeah, so I was, I was going to ask you um, about women, but let's just backtrack a bit because we've mentioned Repton a few times now. What is the Great Army at Repton? Right. Um, okay. So the Great Army is something that, according to the historical records, so Anglo-Saxon Chronicle especially, appears in England in about 865. This is the first time that you have a, a sort of big organized army, uh, if you believe the Chronicle at least. And uh, they start essentially moving around the country, uh, setting up a camp every winter because that's what you do. Uh, warfare is seasonal, so you fight in the summer and then in the winter, partially because of the conditions, it's really difficult to move around in the mud and, and things like that. Um, you, you set up camp somewhere. So every year they set up camp in a different place. And in the year 873, this great army arrives at a site called Repton. Um, and that at the time was the sort of royal uh, ecclesiastical centre of the Anglo-Saxon kingdom of Mercia. And this was a, a kingdom that the Vikings really wanted to get their hands on. Uh, up to that point, they had other, uh, other parts of the country where they didn't have Mercia. So they uh, raided in 873, set up their winter camp in Repton and uh, managed to chase the Mercian king across the sea into exile and take over the whole kingdom. So that's the kind of background story. And in the 1980s, excavations managed to uncover all this Viking evidence, evidence of a, a camp in Repton that had coins stating it to precisely the year uh, that the records say the Vikings were there as well, and several Viking graves. So it's sort of a bit like the Holy Grail. That's what you want. You want exactly all that evidence to back up uh, the historical sources. That's amazing. And as a bioarchaeologist, um, what is your work like there? Right. So the bioarchaeology part of my work has been to look at all the bodies that were buried in Repton. So I've looked at the mass grave. So that's things like looking at the dating. Also look at something called isotope analysis, which is looking at evidence for where somebody grew up. Uh, so not just the diet, the sort of food they ate, but also where they came from originally, because we all uh, keep sort of chemical signatures in our bodies, just like that evidence of whether we've been eating fish, we've also got evidence from the drinking water and the soils that our food grew in, uh, in our teeth. That's, that's kind of locked in and stays there for the rest of your life and, and a thousand years later. That's so all the stuff they use in five minutes on NCIS to find out where someone's being held hostage, isn't it? Yeah, precisely. So I'd love to be able to do it as fast as they can. Sadly, not quite working. And it also doesn't, it's not quite as precise as they would like you to think as well. Mm. So we can't quite pin down a postcode, even though that would be really nice. <laughs> so what kind of stuff have you discovered? So yeah, so looking at these bodies, I've been trying to work out where they're from. Uh, it turns out that many of them 
could definitely have come from uh, Scandinavia. So we have a warrior, what we call a warrior grave in Raptinus. There's two men buried side by side. One who's you sort of stereotypical Viking warrior. He's, he's big and bulky and strong and he's got a sword next to him. Thor's hammer around his neck. He's sort of everything you'd, you sort of, your image, mental image of a Viking. That's, that's kind of him. And um, next to him, there's, there's another man. So they are both have come from a place which is very consistent with Denmark, actually. Yeah. So that's quite likely. Um, and I've also worked with some geneticists, actually, and we were looking at the ancient DNA and extracting, extracting that from them. And uh, the, the sort of exciting point that we got out of that last year was we were m able to prove that they were, in fact, father and son. So ah. buried side by side, which is uh, really, really exciting because we haven't really been able to, to prove that before. So you have father who died I think we we think he died first and then the son died very soon after uh which is also exciting do you have cause of death on them or is it just natural um, yeah there's some pretty serious and horrendous injuries in both of them especially the father who's got uh, hacked quite quite severely so they clearly battle battle dead both of them you mentioned where, a where, did get, cat, where did he get hacked about <laughs> Why did he get hacked about? So he got lots of places. The very severe injury is on his left thigh. So there's a cut into his femur at diagonal. And so it slides down the imagined top of your, your left hip. And then it goes down at an angle. And uh, obviously there was no um, soft tissues remaining. But it seems quite likely that he would have lost his penis in the process. because. Oh, no. <laughs> Yeah, because of the, the, the sort of angle of the cut, but also because those who buried him placed a boar's tusk right in between his legs. So they've the given him a penis for the afterlife. <laughs> That's the theory, yeah, so that he'd have something <sighs> to take with him to Valhalla, just, you know. I think, case. you know what, he now wins the prize. We, we'd already had uh, Sophie Hay on, um, and we felt quite bad for the prone Pompey man who looks like he's in a final moment of self-gratification but this guy <laughs> might top him for the most unfortunate corpse award in archaeology yeah I think he I mean hopefully the, the boar's tusk was was helpful but who knows yeah oh poor guy I mean I think yeah, uh, <laughs> certainly. <laughs> yeah, I, I, as a man, yeah. certainly, it, was, yeah, yeah. It, it makes the eyes water. Um, I just I'm picking up on on, on what Cat was saying about um, you know the, the origins as well. There's fascinating work that's been done on on various uh, you know other mass graves sort of later on the Viking Age as well, and you know because we're sort of there's this idea that you know. Vikings are particularly, you know, in Scotland and Ireland and in the north of England, they're, they're, they're maybe Norwegians and that's where we think them. They're coming from the fjords and on their ships and they're, they're heading across. And what my work is, is doing where it really segues in with Kat's um, latest research here on the origins is, you know, if these, if these father and son, if they're coming perhaps from Denmark, that's really interesting for the way that I look at how, how they, they, they approach this sort of the, the, the markets and the commercial and the monetary elements of these things. This is very boring compared to, to horrific sword wounds, but it's quite <laughs> interesting over what they're doing when they're setting up these camps. You know, they're, they're, they're making fake coins. They're, they're, they're obviously trading. They're using silver that they weigh in balances and they use that as cash uh, and money as well. So it seems a very sophisticated sort of the way we would think of, sort of modern, modern commerce. And the interesting thing about the Danish element is um, the, the, the Danes at that moment were also essentially had an influence in, in, in Scania and in, in, in southern Sweden and also in the sort of Oslo Fjord area of, of, of Norway. And what that influence seems to bring is this very sort of market-orientated society which uses these sophisticated forms of, of commerce and the sort of very sort of, uh, fancy uses of, of money which you wouldn't necessarily associate with, with the Vikings. So when I look at the Great Army, I see them obviously as a sort of a military force but I see them as a very sort of southern Danish Scandinavian influenced group of people who uh -huh. bring across these ideas of what a town should be like what a market should be like and maybe actually deeper than that that they're actually trying to 
basically copy what they know from their homelands around Oslo and in Denmark. And they think, well, this is what a market looks like. This is the really efficient way to get money. If you're the, if you're the king, you think, well, I set up this market and I can bring in all these independent merchants. And then they give me trade money and they give me toll money as well. And also I get to skim off some nice gifts and I get to get this monopoly on on trade goods so i can reinforce my social position so when these warrior bands are coming from that part of scandinavia when they're setting up this war camp in places like repton as well in, in ireland as well in woodstown they're often saying well this is not just an army camp this is also like a sort of mini town this is sort of you know, like a traveling bazaar um uh, as well so that's where my work sort of on a sort of more sort of macro wider level and looking at all these sort of slightly boring economic aspects of things <laughs> actually when cats work can bring in saying oh, these people are actually from denmark and that actually really works well with what i'm trying to say about the sort of wider the wider picture in, in terms of economics it's fascinating how you can both use one site so differently. I'm still feeling slightly queasy. Um, I feel like, you know, the end of uh, season three of Game of Thrones when the uh, thumbs in the eyeballs thing, where the guy's yeah, yeah. head got smashed like a melon. I feel nearly yes. that sick over the poor guy with, with the lack of penis. Um, but speaking of sites you've worked on, uh, you guys have worked together somewhere that you don't associate with the Vikings. They got to places we don't automatically think about, didn't they? So tell us about the Ukraine. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Yeah, so we, we've um, spent my life in two, two years there now. And uh, Tom came along last summer as well, which was fantastic. So we've been working on a site, which we don't normally call a Viking site. We'd call it a Rus site. And these are essentially the, the Eastern Vikings. And there's a, there's a big debate on how much of a Scandinavian influence they really had. But uh, if, you, if you sort of look at any textbook, really, on the Vikings, you'll normally see these arrows going out. So you'd have the arrows going, perhaps that's what we were just saying, what Tom was saying, from, from Denmark to places like England, um, and often Norway to England as well. And then if you look at uh, somewhere like Sweden, normally those arrows go more to the east, and they go in towards what is now Russia, down through Eastern Europe, uh, and all the way down to the Black Sea. And that's where we are getting a lot of the silver coming in. So it's starting, like Tom was saying at the beginning, with places like Estonia and Salme, just sort of short hop across the, the Baltic. But um, what is actually happening uh, there, and we do think a lot of it comes from Sweden, but we've, we've also got some new evidence on that now. There's a lot of trade going, especially along the river. So some of it is um, some of it is raiding activity, but a lot of it is also trade. And you can actually get uh, all the way down from the Baltic down to the Black Sea, which I thought was really amazing when I first found out, uh, on the river systems. Some places you have to actually take your boat out of the water and pull it across land, mm. and um, you sort of have to to negotiate all of that but you can get all the way down and what's happening from that stage in the late 8th century is that you're starting to see these settlements popping up uh, sort of um, circulating out from from the Baltic and down towards uh, the Black Sea region. Now we know a lot of those have got a big Scandinavian uh, input and influence because there's a lot of Viking, typical Viking and Scandinavian artifacts but as Tom said earlier, they do also mix with the local Slavic population. So we know a lot of the Vikings go down the eastern rivers and they set up 
uh, some of these trading posts, some places they completely take over, setting up towns and so on. Uh, and then they become very heavily involved in the politics as well. And they then uh, get involved in trade. They, they help the silver flowing back up north to Scandinavia and they become embroiled in the local politics. So the place we've been working at is in Ukraine is a site called Vipovsiv, which is one of these trading settlements that's definitely had a Viking Scandinavian input. How much we're still trying to work out, but it was a very cleverly situated on, on one of the bigger rivers that's uh, just a little bit north of Kiev. And it's a place where the Rus, or the Rus is, is the, the, the name for, for these groups that may or may not be Vikings. And uh, they basically set up uh, fortified settlements where they control everything that goes up and down towards the Black Sea, towards places like Kiev, towards places like Constantinople or, or Istanbul as we know it now. And they take taxes, they control people, they take slaves, they sell slaves, and essentially do the same sort of bit of raiding, bit of trading. Uh, <laughs> they become very big and very, very powerful. No, no, I was just going to say that's the sort of site we've been working on, one of those settlements, and we've been, been joining a Ukrainian team and, and digging there for two years, which has been very exciting. Um, so for those, obviously, that don't know, Rus obviously becomes Russia, doesn't it? That's the precursor to Russia um, Precisely. in some shape and form. Uh, have you found anything in the Ukraine, guys, that um, changes what you thought about the Vikings? Any, any new evidence that has made um, people's perceptions evolve? So, so far, we haven't found that great big thing that changes it yet, but we are finding, well, last year we found more evidence that the site was bigger, it was more important, it was possibly earlier than we thought previously. But I think what we are finding is actually some links back in places like Scandinavia and also in England that are now linking to the East much more uh, than we thought before. So... For instance, there's a, there's a sister site to the one we've been working on, a site called Shestovitsa, which has been uh, much more heavily excavated. It's much better known. It's got loads of graves that are what we would recognize as Viking graves with lots of Scandinavian artifacts. Mm -hmm. And some of them have very, very close parallels, especially to Sweden. And the grave goods are, are practically the same. So it's clearly either they're just trading the objects, more likely they're actually moving people uh, as well. But I think yeah. one really interesting element of that, so this is right next to where we, we were digging, really. Um, there was a, a very famous burial that uh, we were going to talk a bit about women as well, so we can kind of segue onto that. Definitely, a bit. yeah. <laughs> yeah, a very famous one from Birka, which Tom mentioned earlier, this trading site where those um, <clears throat> mass graves from Samoa may have come from and uh, there was a, a grave there which has uh, actually artifacts that matched almost identical those in Ukraine in, in those graves in Shesovitsa. Um So it's showing that these people are coming from places like Birka to to that part of Ukraine that we're working in. That's mad. Um, let's go even further though because you've already mentioned a Viking presence or a Viking connection with the Arab world haven't you? Yes, that's right. So um, this is this is only really one step on that because this is really that beginning of contact with uh, with the Silk Rose and with the Islamic world. So you have all these dirham, all this silver that Tom was talking about that we find on these trading sites all the way in Derbyshire. We're finding them in the fields next to Repton. We are finding dirhams that come from the Middle East. They've all come through probably through uh, Scandinavia, which is the work that Tom's doing, and then down the east. So places like Vipovsiv um, is where we're working, uh, going down to Constantinople, and then uh, even places like Baghdad. So the trade, the coins, people as well are going all the way down that eastern route. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's the interesting thing that you can have a dirham uh, on the Isle of Skye in Scotland. You can have it in, a, in a, an ecclesiastical uh, hoard sites in Ireland and you can have it in Ukraine as well, all in sites that are in some way linked to Scandinavians. And the, the interesting thing about the site and the, the positive site that, that, that Kat was talking about originally, you've got evidence potentially of, of, of boat repair there as well. And now that's something that, that you also get in Canada, in Lonsome Meadow, the, the famous Newfoundland site too. So you get all these things that are, you know, you, you've got boat repair in Canada uh, all the way to Ukraine. You've got dirhams from, you know, sort of Scottish islands to 
Ukraine as well. And there's just so many sort of common elements. I used to be sort of work in Roman archaeology as well, and you, you'd get your professors calling it all the bloody Romans because it was always the same sort of thing that you found. You'd find the same sort of pottery and the same sort of sites. Everything looked just like it was off a plan. And one of the fascinating things about the, 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 the Viking world, particularly at this time, the stuff that Kat and I look at, is you've got this sort of package of things that you can go that's Scandinavian and it's something that Kat can also talk about. In fact, you find gaming pieces and you'll find gaming pieces at uh, sites in, in the Danelaw part of England as well that are from these Hernafertafel sort of board games. And you get Deerham fragments as well and you get ship nails from sort of ship repair. And if you start to find this sort of package of things, you think, ah, they're Scandinavians. And whereas in the Roman world, it can be a bit of like, you know, everything looks the same just because you've got this sheer i mean such a much vaster range a vast sort of geographical extent that you're finding similar things as say from from canada to ukraine and that's something which i think is partially the reason why we find it fascinating as archaeologists but also the general public find it fascinating too because you've got all these elements that are just sort of universal across across the scandinavian world it is it's so interesting that you're you're being able to tie um like or, or to weave a a picture of the Vikings that um, is far more coherent and that does all of this new advancement in Viking studies that you're doing in archaeology is that making up for a lack of written sources or a written source is good for the Viking? It's a bit varied some of the sources are are good and very useful but the problem with a lot of them is that they are written down quite a lot later so or, or they are uh, from the the enemy side really so okay the ones that we find things like the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle is very much built up around poor Alfred's fight against these pesky Vikings and all the horrible things that they did. So they're not really telling us about the Vikings from from their sort of perspective and a lot of these things. So we have to take them some of the sources with a pinch of salt, uh, and a lot of the the sort of Scandinavian Icelandic sources, the sagas and things are much later. They're written in 12th even 13th century. And then you're actually quite a few hundred years back, and they're a lot of them are essentially fiction, or they're, they're almost like historical fiction, I guess. Yeah. Um, so, so obviously you've got those issues. You then have some other really interesting ones, which are the Arabic sources. So you've got accounts, Arabic accounts of these Eastern Vikings or the Rus, and some of them are more or less eyewitness accounts, which is really, really useful for us and really exciting. But no, I do think that a lot of this new evidence now, a lot of the scientific techniques we can use are adding to it and also be, letting us kind of test, I guess, some of those sources to see are they really quite right. So it's, it is a, an exciting time. Which of your scientific um, advances is proving the most fruitful for exciting stuff as an archaeologist? I do think that the isotope analysis, so the stuff I was talking about with origins, mm. because you can apply it to humans, but you can also apply it to objects. So you can look at where objects came from, not that they've eaten anything, but if you look oh, okay. at geological sources essentially of things like metals so there's a lot of really exciting work going on on silver at the moment so we're finding all this silver if you're finding a dirham then it's really obvious where it's come from because it will have that written on it it will have the year it was issued and the place it was issued in and that's that's fine but what we do know is that the vikings like to melt down their silver so they'd take these really good quality silver islamic coins and they'd melt them down into either an ingot that you would then cut off bits and, and use them to buy stuff with yeah. or just turn them into beautiful uh, jewelry and sometimes the jewelry was sort of currency as well um but up until now we haven't been able to say anything about where that silver came from so unless you found actual coins, you couldn't really say so much about that. But you can do the same thing as, as with the human teeth. You can look at the isotopes in the silver. So, uh, so things like lead isotopes, it's got a little bit of lead in it. And uh, you can look at what sort of geology that specific lead came from, because different geographical regions, different lead in different parts of the world uh, have different signatures. You can take a tiny, tiny bit of a uh, something in the British Museum or something like that, and you can find out with, with a relatively good uh, degree of confidence whether that came from England, if it came from uh, somewhere like France, or if instead it came from, from the Middle East. And that's really uh, starting. It's just coming out now, some of that data, and it's, it's hugely exciting because now we can say that actually an awful lot of it is coming from the East, much more than we used to think. And Tom, what about you? Is that is it the same thing that's uh, driving your research forward, the isotope analysis? 
Yeah, no, there's some great work. Um, people like Jane Kershaw um, is doing work on that at the moment, and um, that 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 work is is ongoing. Um, as I say, I mean, I I think Cat's work is you know on on the on origins um, of of the sort of great army is something that's really um, you know working well with, with with what I do. As I say, my sort of thesis is these people from sort of southern Scandinavia, the sort of Danish groups um even if they're sort of from norway they, they they were sort of danish influenced groups and they're coming over and they're trying to set up basically um you know a vision of of what they they knew in terms of this place called head to boo and kaupang these sort of market sites and, and birka uh in in the sort of baltic and and in southern scandinavia and they're trying to transpose this onto york and to dublin and you get the sort of joint kingdom uh, of, of of York and Dublin, this sort of, big, sort of uh, Viking uh, kingdom across across the Irish Sea, and for my theory to 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 make sense, as my work in my PhD was that basically this is a sort of Danish style or Southern Scandinavian style idea that you you set up this thing called um, there's lots of academics in, in Scandinavia we talk about network kingdoms, and I can I can give references to that um, to anyone that that wants to contact contact me afterwards basically this network kingdom ideas that you have york and dublin and their sort of nodal markets and you they're part of this kingdom structure that are based around these trading sites so basically this idea you set up this kingdom that is based on trade routes and it's based on trading sites and my work would be looking at saying well this makes more sense if you're setting up dublin and york in this way and there's this dynastic continuity Basically, you sort of you have a, a king in Dublin, and they'll spend most of their reign trying to also be king in York as well in the Danelaw. This makes more sense if you're trying to basically copy what was happening in, in places like Hedeby in Denmark, and Kaupang and places called Heimdalsjordetter is another uh, Viking market site set up there as well. Basically, it makes sense if the people that are coming over to set up, you know, in the Great Army, they're setting up these winter camps and they're setting up these long uh, winter camp type things in, in Ireland if they're coming from southern Scandinavia. So if Cat's doing work saying, well, actually, these 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 people in these graves seem to be Danish, that really helps me say, well, this makes sense because the people are actually coming from these areas where I would expect from the way that I look at how they use money and how they set up markets. So in terms of in terms of the work that's coming out at the moment, um, you know, as I say, that 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 work on on getting geographical origins of the actual people, the actual Vikings involved, is, is something that really is really helping me. Brilliant. Um, I just love that it's advancing in so many different directions as well. Um, just finally, uh, we did say that we talk about women. Um, and Kat, you mentioned that 20% of the graves at Repton are female. Um, how is this changing the way you look at Viking women? And is it revealing a different role in society for them? And what's it telling us? Right, yeah. So this is the, the, the big question. And it's the one I get asked a lot as well. Who were those women? Were they warriors? Or were they fighting women? Were they Vikings? Originally, when they were first dug up, it was thought that they were the local wives of the uh, Viking men who'd come in and taken Anglo-Saxon wives. We now have to change that quite radically, actually, with what we know about Viking women now. And it's come from a few things, and one of them is the isotopes. So the isotope evidence of those women in particular, those in Repton, the ones I have tested, they're kind of coming from all over the place, and I can't conclusively pin down the postcode like that, um, those lucky uh, NCIS people <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to say oh actually um, but it's they're, they're, they're not local they're definitely not local women a few of them have isotope uh, signatures that don't really fit into Eng England at all quite possibly some really mountainous regions of I don't know Scotland Tom um, or <laughs> somewhere like that so possibly uh, Wales but I think it's more likely that they have come from Scandinavia but what we compare that up with is evidence from across Scandinavia that women were really mobile and we used to think that all the Viking women would be sitting at home carefully tending to the farm looking after sheep or whatever uh, while those uh, pesky men were out raiding and pillaging but actually we're now looking at isotope evidence across Scandinavia across Viking sites women were moving as well so they were part of the movements both going out and actually also some going into Scandinavia and um, we also have evidence from 
someone like Jane Kershaw's work uh, looking at jewellery, Viking dress jewellery uh, from England, there's a huge amount being found by metal detectorists showing that Scandinavian women are coming to England as well. So if we know that women are moving around, uh, we have to start questioning what those uh, women were doing there in Repton because they could very well also be part of the Great Army. Does that mean they were fighting? Well, we can't actually answer that. Um, I think it's been popular, popular sort of conceptions of, of, of Viking women and especially programs like Vikings have convinced us all that uh, Viking women could just as well be warriors as, as men. That's not necessarily true. It's not uh, impossible that they were fighting and uh, part of the army, but they certainly were there and they certainly were also coming from Scandinavia. If they were part of that group, it's likely that they would have known how to fight to some degree, that they know how to defend themselves. You weren't going to bring your, your wife or your sister or your mother along and, and leave them completely defenseless and, and yeah. just unable to fend for themselves. So they would certainly, I think everyone has to pitch in. You have to fight, fight the, the Anglo-Saxons. Um, so they, they were certainly doing that as well. But I think the fact that they were part of the outwards movement is what's really, really important. That's, it doesn't really matter so much if they were warriors or not I don't think I think people get obsessed and excited about that which I can see why but I think it's more important to know that they were there they were part of it and that's also going to spread things like culture and, and language to much more there's a reason why we, we call it mother tongue um, so if, if women are coming along they are, will be spreading uh, a lot more things than, than perhaps just a group of men so that's changing the picture quite a lot I think that's yeah, and I think just, just just to add to that, 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 that site of Birka, again, which is sort of at the very beginning of the Viking Age when it heads out to the east as well. But the interesting, it also, also trades with the Western Viking world to what you get there is graves um, of women and also of children that have trade paraphernalia in it. So they have these, these specialised weights and they have things related to it as if they're also involved in trading, you might get this idea that, you know, while people are, you know, heading off towards these these Russian-Ukrainian rivers, they're actually managing the sort of import, you know, export business back at home. And again, if, if Kat and, and, and Jane are looking at this work where people are, you know, women are actually physically moving over as well, perhaps that's something, you know, to get away with from the Viking sort of fighting aspect of it as well. Perhaps, again, they're, they're involved in this trading sort of, element of it too they, they sort of manage they're doing financial sort of aspects to it as well so i think it is yeah what, what you know what their role is but the fact is it doesn't have to be just be one thing it could it could be the sort of multiple just as much as the men they're they're sort of doing all this huge spectrum of of, of economic and and sort of martial activity yeah, I think the Vikings really, my most of the main conclusion is that they're really good at multitasking and they're really good at <laughs> working out what was really needed in any one situation. So you could be fighting, you could be trading, you could be, you were sort of, they were kind of jacks of all trades, I think. And that's one of the things that made them be so successful. They could really adapt to what was needed at any place in time. So if they needed to fight, if they needed to, to get their wealth that way, they, they could do that. But if they needed to trade, if that was more suitable, then then that was also something that was open to you. So I think that ability to just take advantage of any situation, work out what was needed, what you could adapt from home, what you needed to learn, uh, a new way of doing things either in the West or in the East was part of that that great big success that made them go all the way to, to, to Baghdad uh, in the East and then North America in the West. I think that was that's part of the key really. It's brilliant because if, it's, it's so logical when you think about it that for them to have been so successful across such a wide area they must have been more than just sort of brainless warriors who went around killing everything in sight but it's great that you're you're being able to uh, use new technology as archaeologists and new discoveries to to flesh that out for real and, and document that definitely and i think we're just going to see more and more and more because these methods are becoming more sophisticated we can use them more and more and new sites you know we've got these amazing new ships being found all over norway we get so jealous every every month it seems they find a new yeah. ship with, yeah. with radar technology in norway um but you know these are going to bring up new new evidence and, and new methods uh, can be used to find them so yeah watch this space i think yeah, absolutely. And I can't wait for your book to come out as well. It, it seems Thank brilliant. You. So it's, you are, it is a new history of the Vikings, isn't it? Using all of these yeah. new discoveries. And 
So I'm using it and especially connecting what's going on in the West to the East and trying to look at it slightly differently. So saying what are the contacts with the Silk Road? How can we trace it down the rivers uh, going to the East? So it's going to be hopefully a slightly, slightly different book for most of them. And, yeah. Uh, it's meant to come out this autumn. It looks like, unfortunately, because of this horrible virus, it's going to be delayed until 2021 now, but, um, but it is coming. I think I so saw we'll, that we'll, we'll, potentially February. Yes, hopefully. Um, yeah, we're sort of working on the dates at the moment. I think early 2021, it looks likely. I've, I've written it, but it's got, a, oh. it's got a, the last little push. Damn. And I, and I hopefully, hopefully I sort of, uh, I'll have a book out in 2021 as well, which again, I've sort of, I've written and I've got, I've got my, got my contract, but that'll be again, more in sort of my, my PhD and looking at this idea that, you know, sort of, the, the Vikings carry this idea, very sophisticated idea of, of market and marketplace with them, and they, they very deliberately try and set it up when when they're in the Viking West as well. So uh, there should be quite a lot a lot to read in 2021 on this fascinating, vast, uh, multifarious world of, of the Vikings. Excellent. Um, I can't wait for both of them, guys. Thank you so much for joining us um, to talk about the Vikings and for rounding out our perspective of them and giving us something else to think about. No, thank you so much for the invitation. It's great. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you for, for all you're doing for keeping people uh, to, to stay, stay home and stay sort of, uh, interested in, in, in all these fascinating podcasts. So thank, thank you to you both. And oh, thank, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Join us tomorrow when we will be talking to William Sturkey, who is an associate professor at the University of North Carolina. He has written a fascinating book, um, Hattiesburg, an American city in black and white. And he's going to be talking to us about African-American history, life in the Jim Crow South, um, all through the eyes of one Mississippi town. Um, Don't forget, you can now be uh, a patron of ours um, via our website, which is historyhack.podbean.com. Anything that uh, you feel like uh, contributing as a thank you or as uh, an appreciation for what you've been listening to will help to keep us going in the aftermath of the coronavirus um, and we would muchly appreciate it. We're still looking for questions from you uh, for the cast of Sharp for the Chosen Men reunion which we're recording tomorrow and don't forget you can still send in your questions for now more than a dozen of the actors who starred in Band of Brothers um, or the families of those who were represented in the series and also James Holland, Peter Caddick Adams and Paul Woodage, who will be doing a history-based show looking at the background to the series. Uh, Until then, stay safe. If you possibly can, stay at home. This is Nighthawk signing off. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.